If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. When you picture a castle, what do you see? A mighty stronghold under siege from attackers, or an ethereal ruin lost to time and nature. You might even picture a regal residence surrounded by vast swathes of parkland, or the fantastical palaces of classic Hollywood films. In his new book, The Castle, A History, John Goodall explores these iconic, ever-changing structures and describes how they've reflected societies around them. Emily Briffitt spoke to him to find out more. Hello to you, John. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. No, it's lovely to have the opportunity to speak on your podcast, Emily. Thank you for having me. Today we're going to be talking all about castles. Tell me, what inspired you to write this book? Well, I suppose it's really just loving castles. I love travelling to castles, seeing them, and, you know, they're wonderful places, aren't they? They're always so evocative. I love the fact that you, when you travel to see buildings, the weather, the company... What you do in between shapes your memories of them. I I find them completely fascinating. And of course, I love history. So they take me straight into that. And I suppose the book is born of all those things directly. No, well, I like to pretend sometimes that I'm sort of serious about castles, but actually if there's a tower in one, I just want to run to the top of it and look at the view. So uh, there's still, I feel that straightforward enjoyment of, of pleasure of place is very important. And I think it is for many people who love buildings and castles. If you were to picture a castle what would be the thought that went through your mind gosh that's an interesting question isn't it i mean i think i have two visions of castles one of them is a ruin in lyrical you know english landscape and the other is of something in a film something reconstructed something living 
And of course, they're both, they're totally different. They're related. And yet they are two sides of a coin, aren't they? One of the building as a living place and the other as as a monument. And in my mind, I suppose that they actually run through the whole story of the castle, actually. And so I see two things, if that's not a cheat answer to to a single question. I think this is something almost that you bring up in your book is you talk about there's people have a perception of there being a real castle and also I guess being some sort of fake castle in reverse. Well I think that we all tend to think reflexively of castles as medieval buildings and also military buildings and of course they are that's where they come from but they do have a much longer history than this. And I suppose in the book, I was trying to change the frame of the way we see the castle in two ways, broaden it. One of those is to say that the castle is something that has a resonance to the present day. You know, I mean, people have been building castles even in the 20th century. I'm not yet aware of a 21st century castle, but there are 20th century castles. But also, I suppose, I was trying to broaden it, you know, as a historian, of course, I'm writing all the time, words, 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 and they're all my own words. But in this book, I'm also trying to use the words of the people who saw these castles at different periods. It's trying to broaden the frame and say, so I think I know what I think they are. But what did people in the 12th century say about castles? What happened in them? How did they describe them? What did people in the 17th century say? What did people in the 19th century say? What did people in the 20th and and the modern castle too? So I'm trying to draw out the frame. We all know at one level where castles begin, but only to look at them in those terms is is terribly limited, I think. And it's the story is cumulative and it's still going on. And that's true both as monuments, as we were talking about, But also, of course, there are lots of castles that are still lived in. I mean, from the Queen in Windsor (laughs) all the way downwards. And it's absurd to say that the history of Windsor stops when people stop thinking of of Windsor as a defensible place. It still goes on. And actually, it's fascinating how it goes on. And, you know, Windsor, I think there's nothing that would quite match that. But there are plenty of castles that are still occupied. And so just trying to, you know, ring those changes, make people think about them in different ways. And and the book is trying to be a little bit provoking, making people realise that there are really rather fascinating and different stories and perspectives on these buildings. And also, I suppose, finally, that they've always had a place in fiction and fantasy and legend. That's a very ancient thing. It's not new. Picking up on what you say there about fantastical interpretations, I guess, how do you think that the public perception of what the castle is have been shifted, has been changed or made by popular media? Well, I think in films and computer games, the castle is nearly always represented as a living thing. And it has quite a dark side to it. It's about power (laughs) and usually about imprisonment and control. (laughs) And that has itself a very, very long history, you know, definitely back into the Middle Ages. There were lots of people who saw castles going up in the Middle Ages and they were worried. They did not like them. They knew what they meant. (laughs) I think that there's more somehow, though, to, to these buildings as living monuments today, that it's easy for the public perception to be shaped by that and to think of them only in those terms and uh, in fact there's a lot more and I and again that the book is trying to bring this out and there are of course some very light-hearted um, evocations of castles in 20th century literature and uh, things such as P.G. Woodhouse describing country house castles uh, and things like this that are also imagined places but they're very bright they're the playgrounds of the idle rich and that of course has a very strong in, in the early 20th century when people were 
rediscovering the delights of living in castles, particularly around London, and rebuilding lots of castles around London. You think of Leeds, you know, luxuriously fitted up <laughs> by a French designer, <laughs> or um, or Hurstwansu in Sussex. You know, pe- pe- people are rediscovering the pleasure of the castle. It becomes a, a plaything of the very, very rich. And I think many of us today see only the, 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 the sort of film version of these buildings, or we see them as ruins and visitor attractions. Those are different. So there's another, another contemporary uh, register for castles too, I think. So how do you think we should see the castle? In your opinion, is it as a shifting entity? Or is there, could we say there is a definition or at least some level of a definition that we could go with? Yes, I think, well, you have to define these things, but you also have to acknowledge the limitations of definitions. So as a stab, I have defined a castle as a nobleman's residence made magnificent through the trappings of fortification. Now, that uh, definition is different from uh, the conventional definition, which is to say the castle is the residence of a nobleman made defensible. And uh, the point of my definition, I suppose, is it sidesteps the question of whether fortifications actually work or not. (laughs) Because conventionally, again, people have looked at castles and they've said, if this battlement works, then this is a real castle. But if it's just a piece of icing sugar on the top of the cake, it's a fake castle or not a real castle. (laughs) And my point is that actually from very, very early on, the battlement in particular acquires a kind of social significance. I mean, arguably, living in a house with battlements still means something even today. It's different, isn't it? <laughs> I certainly don't. I don't know about you. Oh, it would, it would <laughs> <And> be lovely. <laughs> it would be lovely. It feels very, very um, refined. <laughs> so it's trying to say that, in fact, uh, there's an aesthetic significance to battlements in the Middle Ages as well. So that the castles use the trappings of fortification to say something about their owners, that they are from this hereditary class of people who were born to fight. And that's sort of what knightly the knightly cast is in the Middle Ages. But that has very, very long shadows. And in Britain particularly, I mean, you know, we still have a House of Lords. We still have a hereditary monarchy. These are, I mean, incredible. I mean, I have no idea, you know, they may not last much longer, but you know, they, they are there. And these are shadows of a, a world that is totally unlike our own, in a way. I mean, it's extraordinary that they, they still exist in this way. And Windsor Castle, again, coming back to it, you know, isn't it a fascinating continuity? And the only time that it's ever really been threatened is during the Commonwealth in the 17th century, where Parliament thought, yeah, let's demolish it. <laughs> and they didn't get round to it, basically. And then Charles II comes back, and what does he do? He throws money at it in the 1680s and turns it into a setting for his own kind of divine rule. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. This may or may not be a difficult question, considering we still have, like you say, the Queen still lives in Windsor Castle. But is there a, perhaps a turning point almost where you see the castle move from this more traditional idea of fortification to more of a place of living and where we see these battlements actually just become an aesthetic? There is, I think, a shift, but it's so gradual. And of course, it doesn't always take into account these strange aberrations from this rule. So, I mean, for example, in the 19th century, one, you know, have written about one castle, a place called Peckforton, which really does seem to be designed as a, in the manner of a 13th century castle, but in a context of industrial 
uh, disquiet. And the fact is that there are 19th century buildings that were genuinely designed to be sort of slightly like fortifications. I mean, that they, were, they weren't intended to resist armies, but they were intended to resist the mob and the chartists and so forth. So there is, you know, even when you put this sense of uh, defence down, um, it's ambiguous, I think, as to when that stops. I just mentioned Charles II. You know, I think one of the reasons he moves to Windsor in, um, in, in the 1670s is that he's alarmed by London mobs. Whitehall is not a safe place. And Windsor Castle has walls. He moves the court there. He's never really been there very much before. And it suddenly becomes a really important place. And I think there's no question that it's to do with the fact that it is ultimately a defensible place. And it's away from London. Or the Duke of Wellington in the 1840s fortifying the Tower of London because he's frightened about the Chartists. This is, you know, so, so you know, castles don't just sort of stop being defensible. There are all these interesting themes that continue. But, you know, on, by the contrary measure, as early as the 13th century, people are clearly admiring castles as works of architecture. They have parties where people get into, you know, toy castles and women are besieged by knights for people's entertainment after dinners and throw flowers down on them from the walls of their little toy castles and they're then carried off in triumph by the knights. I mean, <laughs> these are, you know, castles are both for fun and for war and these images of them are all interrelated. But throughout your book, you talk about lots of different themes about how castles have been seen throughout the history and that may be constant themes throughout their entire history. Could you maybe tell us about a few of these themes that you bring up in your book? Indeed. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, there are some obvious themes such as, you know, castles and warfare, castles as prisons. Um, um, you know, this that's one of the longest, uh, most consistent roles of castles. I mean, somewhere like Lancaster Castle, which um, finally closed as a prison, I think in 2012 or something, you know, it has been a judicial centre and a prison since, you know, probably it was founded in the, in the late 11th century. So in these breathtaking periods of time where there are consistent themes. Um, but there are also things, you know, castles and tourism. And as I say, you know, one of the earliest uh, examples of that that I've shown is Henry III giving instructions to the constable of Dover in the late 13th century that he must show round an eminent French guest in a way that impresses him and makes him see the nobility of the castle at Dover. So, you know, here we have a tourism of castles, you know, when we still think of them just as buildings of war, and they're, and they're not at all. But another theme that I think is particularly interesting is that of legend. I think we're very used to thinking of history as the pursuit of things that actually happened. And we forget that, I think we flatter ourselves incidentally in that in some ways, because many of the things that we think really happened are our own perspectives on what's important. But in the past, we very quickly forget that people saw history in completely and radically different ways. And castles, and particularly the sort of first generation of major castles, early on become legendary buildings. I mean, as early as the 13th century, people think that Julius Caesar builds the Tower of London. And there are lots of other castles that, by the 17th century, people believe are Roman buildings or buildings constructed in the Dark Ages. And this is a seriously believed, you know, antiquarian view into the mid-19th century. And is only, in fact, finally discredited in the early 20th century. And that's important because, in a sense, the most important castles become the foundation stones, sort of like the bones of the landscape, the architectural bones of the landscape. They're the way people think that these things go back time out of mind, and they are absolutely at the roots of the story of Britain. 
And in that sense, you know, when you have a building like Kenilworth Castle being attributed to the foundation of a fictional king called Kenelm, you begin to realize that these things, you know, they, 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 are, they are associated with the foundation myths of Britain, the, how Britain came to be. And that's actually very, very similar to the way we see castles today, in fact. It seems to me that, uh, uh, you know, we, uh, particularly in fantasy, you know, that they, they have a fantastical quality. In narratives, they have an almost legendary quality. But as I say, we tend to think of real history and sort of legendary history. But in fact, to understand these buildings, you have to make the same mistakes as different generations, which is why it's also quite important to hear the voices of people in the 13th century or the 14th century or the 17th century talking about these things because you suddenly realise that's how they genuinely saw them. Weirdly, but it's, you know, they just did. That's what they thought they were seeing. History made manifest in architecture through these almost primeval buildings. I'm really interested on that point. Could you maybe give us a couple of other examples? Uh, Windsor is again a very good example. You know, Windsor is associated with it's you know it's Camelot for some people. That's what it is. It's founded by King Arthur. So, what more perfect symmetry could there be than to have a castle founded by King Arthur, the once and future king? This figure who hovers behind the past, the present, and the future of Britain. Because, of course, we all know he's not really dead. He's still out there waiting to come back. And if you are Edward the Third, you might dress up in um, a costume and fight as an Arthurian figure in a joust and assume a name such as Lionel, which is a punning reference to the Lions of England, and be superbly attired in, you know, his wardrobe accounts, you know, showing him wearing uh, plumes with thousands of peacock feathers woven into them. His clothes and things must have been absolutely extraordinary. And then founding a round table, in the 1340s in Windsor Castle, a great circular building where you can have these jousts and hasteludes, these military entertainments, and people can watch you. It's like a kind of Shakespearean globe. You reenact the past, the present, and look forward to the future, and you cast yourself as an ideal king. And you even invite, of course, crowds of people from London to watch you doing it, because what's the point of doing it just by yourself? You, Every, every person needs an audience. <laughs> so the, these things, there's a sort of fascinating intersection of fiction and reality in these things. It feels like the combination of those makes very much a statement about its owners. It is, it's almost, a, it is a statement piece. It's like maybe having a flash car or a, it's having a fancy house. It is. And I also think it's very sophisticated because the other layer of this, of course, is that it's, you, it's quite convenient when we think of real history and legendary history, we think of them as quite different things. And it's quite easy to think that legendary history is born of ignorance and sort of superstition about the past. Well, I think we still do it. If you go to King's Cross and you look at all those people queuing up to be photographed um, with their hands on the edge of a trolley with a platform sign nine and three quarters from Hogwarts, none of those people really believe that Hogwarts exists, or at least I don't imagine they do, nor do they imagine that there is really a platform nine and three quarters. But they're there because King's Cross unites fantasy and reality. And that's just what Edward III is doing with King Arthur. And it's actually rather, well, I mean, you know, look at the queues at King's Cross. It's amazing. That's what lots of people are coming to revisit. So we are absolutely in the same game today. It's not a historic mistake. It's a contemporary mistake. But it's not really a mistake. It's just really good fun. It's kind of contributing to 
that almost that tourism boom. And then like that you've said that we've seen in the distant past as well. But it also I agree, and it but it also makes prosaic places, King's Cross, where we all go to commute or to travel or do things that we, we, we do because we have to rather than because we want to be in King's Cross, it makes them much more fun. I mean it you know <laughs> it it makes the ordinary seem special. And why wouldn't we want to do that? It seems to me a marvellous thing to do. But it it is you know, under the cold light of analysis, you could also say it's ridiculous. But I don't think it is. I mean, I, I, I think I do it all the time visiting castle sites and I slightly romanticise them. I try and imagine what they're like. I find that interesting intellectually, but also it makes them much more interesting, doesn't it? Rather than just seeing a whole pile of stones. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. One of the things I talk about is the Disney castle, for example. You know, that it doesn't really have many battlements. What's so extraordinary about it is it's something that all of us can recognise as a castle, even those who've never seen a castle because they don't live in Western Europe. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Do you think it almost contributes to a sense of identity? Well, I think it does contribute to our culture. I mean, I think in the past, it's much easier to see it as contributing to a kind of patriotic or sometimes even a nationalistic culture. I don't think nationalism is a, is a novelty in British political life in any way at all. It's, it's a very interesting question. I don't know. I think we tend to see it probably in more human terms rather than in grander terms. It, it's a way of animating our own experience and and it's quite a personal thing isn't it when you do get things that are shared you know all of us have places in our lives that are significant but where you have a place that becomes significant because lots of people see it as significant as platform nine and three quarters then there's a kind of a, a collective identification which reassures people and then encourages people who maybe weren't interested to become involved so it becomes demonstrative when it gets over a certain scale and I think that's exactly the same as, again, projecting this backwards into the past. You know, if you get 
Windsor Castle kind of becomes important in certain ways to a certain degree, then other people buy into it. We were talking about roles earlier. Are there perhaps any roles castles took on that we might think might be a little bit unusual today? I don't think we tend to think of them always as prisons, as a matter of fact, but I mean that very recently ceased. I think... uh, I suppose we do think of them as places of of feasting. We don't think of them historically as places where children and uh, people, I mean, people lived ordinary domestic lives. I think we have a very strange idea that that, that somehow uh, the past was very, very rugged. We don't think of them as places of luxury, but I think that they really were actually, but just a different kind of, not a kind of luxury that we would aspire to, but, but they were. They are an an, an architectural emblem of land ownership. And I think something that a lot of work has been done on recently and is completely fascinating is the way that landholding also extends to landscape and that the landscape, the ownership of landscape is has been expressed, enacted through hunting. You know, if you can ride wherever you want over a, over a landscape to hunt something, it's yours. Doesn't matter what damage you do, nobody can complain because it's yours. And um, the the sort of uh, the uh, as a seat of hunting. I mean, I think that's um, a, a very 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 long continuity. Expressions of legend, expressions also of ancient of heredity. This idea that if you are a knight. You're a knight because your father was a knight and your grandfather was a knight all the way back in time. So castles as expressions of of family history. And of course, in the 18th century, you get this extraordinary situation of people building castles in their their grounds that actually are expressions of their supposed ancestry that they come to represent. They they need a castle, so they build one in their backyard. And, and there's a very good example at Wentworth Castle in Yorkshire, where the, this ruined castle is restored, because, of course, there had to be a castle there before. It had to be restored because it was really recreating a castle that had never existed on a hill in the 1730s. Uh, and each of the towers is given the name of one of the children of the family. So the castle becomes in this bizarre way, it's juxtaposed to a house. It becomes the proof of the ancestry of the family and is linked to the dynasty. I mean, it's a completely bizarre um, intellectual construct. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it, it's real. <laughs> it was done. It's like mocking up your family tree of adding a few sort of royals or a few no- members of the nobility into that. It's, I guess it's the same, but architecturally. It's doing it architecturally. And of course, I, you know, I think there's always been a degree of snobbery to this kind of thing, but I think it's also important to remember that even into the early 20th century, probably, but certainly in the late 19th century, there is this belief that if you're descended from powerful people, that gives you somehow social authority to be in charge of things. So having a family tree is actually really, really, really important. I mean, it doesn't resonate with us at all, I think, anymore. But dynasty is different from descent. Dynasty is the idea that each, that you sort of draw strength from the depth of your ancestry and what you're, you are the living figure who's at the front of all these powerful and prominent figures before you who are your forefathers. So you, you, again, this rather weird idea of uh, of political power through time and that you become a living emblem of a long stem of powerful people and that justifies your exercising power so obviously we've said about hunting we've said about legend we've said about putting on display how else was the castle 
use perhaps to express that power? Well, I suppose the two other ways are hunting and also raw authority and force. (laughs) You know, when castles come into being in the 11th century, they are frightening things. In the immediate aftermath of the conquest, they are staffed by foreigners. And the only language they speak is that of brute force. It's very hard, I think, today to rescue what that reality must have been like, that if you lived in a major town and William the Conqueror came along and he'd got fed up with trying to pacify everybody and he planted a castle in it, well, they cleared the houses (laughs) wherever they wanted, they dug the place up and they put men in who no doubt uh, took whatever they wanted from the town and felt no obligation to pay for it. So it must have been a very, very frightening thing. And that is something, again, that resonates through time. I mean, in the Civil War, people became, again, very frightened of castles, because castles were places that people could hide out in, and without a proper siege train to level them, they could be occupied and The people inside them just took whatever they needed and they brought armies to besiege them and the armies that besieged them took whatever they pleased. And so, you know, a town like Pontefract in Yorkshire in the 1640s petitions Parliament for permission to destroy the castle because they say it's destroyed us. So this major, major, major castle, which one of the most important you know, castle buildings in Britain, and an easy equal, I think, for a kind of northern Windsor, is pretty much prostrated by after the Civil War because the people of Pontefract are just fed up. And, you know, it, it, I, I suppose it's an important point to make that there are lots of castles in the Civil War. We, you know, you were talking about when do they cease to be important. And it is one of these extraordinary things that there are a number of most, most powerful castles that in the Civil War really do give besieging forces a run for their money, despite the birth of cannon. You know, at Raglan, the cannon shot just bounces off. You know, these are are big buildings, and it's only when they're taken over that people begin to pull them to pieces. And if the Civil War hadn't happened, we would have many, many, many more houses that were castles than we do. I mean, the country house... I think one of the ways in which we've deceived ourselves that Britain becomes peaceful and castles become unimportant is that the combination, it's a sort of myth that the Tudors sort of civilise medieval England and that then we cease talking about castles and we start talking about country houses. But in fact, I think lots of castles remain in occupation until the Civil War. And the Civil War, it's a kind of counterpart to the dissolution of the monasteries. It's the final overthrow of the medieval social order. And of course, in 1649, England unthinkably beheads its monarch. And that's the dying gasp of the Middle Ages, in some ways. And that's when so many castles disappear. Kenilworth, Ragland, um, you know, uh, Pontefract, these great, great, great buildings that have commanded enormous landscapes and estates, and they just are torn to pieces. Some survive, you know, still have uh, buildings such as Barclay, you know, it's still lived in by the Barclay family. They turned up there by at least the late 12th century. They're still there, still occupied. I mean, so there are kind of continuities, amazing continuities, and um, extraordinary, you know, disjunctions as well. Why am I talking about the loss of castles? How many are we sort of talking about here? Is it... 
Is it possible to put a number on that at all, or is it just we know a lot were lost? So the you know in numerical terms, the story of the castle is actually quite weird because. I think that it's a story of rapid castle building until the early 12th century. And then from the early 12th century, in national terms, there's been a steady decline in the number of castles in Britain. What happens at the Civil War is that these last great survivors, these massive buildings that were often agglomerations of estates or had been redeveloped on a really monumental scale over long periods of time, it's those that suddenly fail. And so what you've seen before is in, in the 12th century and the conquest, you see the construction, the rapid construction of lots of castles because people need these things. They're built of timber and earth. That doesn't mean that they were necessarily rugged. They could have been sometimes very ambitious buildings in that form. But these kind of, when, when you get to building in stone, it's much more expensive, much more complicated. There are fewer people who can afford it. And then there's a sort of long, steady decline in the number of castles, because to build a castle, you need to be stupendously wealthy. You need to have the resources to erect things. You need the land, all these different things. So they're kind of diminishing. They are the most prestigious, but a diminishing aspiration for the very rich. And then in the Civil War, you get this inner circle of the nobility, the very wealthy, and their castles are destroyed for the peace of the country because they have proved so incredibly destructive. But then in the 18th and 19th century, of course, people start building their own castles again. And after the um, French Revolution, there's a, a Tory perspective, which is terrified of social upheaval. Lots of Tories begin building castles because they assert Britain's unwritten constitution, the fact that it's, you know, it's a stable society, it hasn't had the French Revolution. They're trying to create buildings that give this illusion of unending authority that goes back to the Middle Ages, that it's all a continuity. Well, I mean, that's weird, but it is very consciously trying to build castles this is you know this is we we are the same society we have moved peacefully uh, this great national myth that britain is never invaded that it's <laughs> you know that that we we we're different from the rest of europe that we do things differently i mean it it's expressed in architecture and some buildings i mean i think many people might look at them and not really think of them as castles but when Highclere, you know, which of course has become famous through its use in Downton Abbey as the set of Downton Abbey, the television series. I mean, you know, that is recast consciously as a castle by a Tory who thinks that the world as he knows it is about to come to an end. I mean, he thinks it's tragic, but he recasts a classical house as Highclere Castle because that's what he thinks, it, you know, that's what society is. That's how he wants to express his, his identity. You spoke there a little bit about a sense of drawing on the past in more recent times to give that sense of continuity. Is there anything that we can say is genuinely a constant in the castle's history? I don't think there are many constants. It, it's a monumental style of building, but I suppose if there is a constant, it is fortifications. It's this use of the trappings of fortifications, battlements, the idea that battlements denote something about the person who lives in a building. Um, you know, they're not just battlements on a, on, a, on a fort, they're battlements on your home. And that seems to me the defining feature of the castle. So we come back to what I said as the definition of the castle as you know, a building of, of a nobleman, or I suppose a noblewoman, uh, which is made magnificent through the trappings of fortification. But you have to acknowledge that 
the castle, I think, that we identify, I mean, one of the things I talk about is the Disney castle, for example, you know, that it doesn't really have many battlements. What's so extraordinary about it is it's something that all of us can recognise as a castle, even those who've never seen a castle because they don't live in Western Europe. <laughs> and yet, all of us can identify as a building type, a castle. It's completely fictional and it doesn't necessarily look particularly defensible though I mean you know who knows <laughs> um, but it, it somehow speaks of fortification and identity. I think my final question for you then drawing upon that point is what do you think castles can reveal about our history? I think the ultimately the weird thing about castles is that they are and it's an idea and the idea is like a mirror. You know, we have the idea of a castle and we see in this mirror of the castle whatever we choose to see, whether it's fantasy, whether it's the Middle Ages, whether, you know, it's luxurious living. And all these themes are fascinatingly united in this building type. And I suppose it's, you know, it's unusual as a building type because it is something that we think we know what it is. But it's very difficult to put your finger on what unites castles across large periods of time, but I think we do see them as the same thing. It's important always when viewing a subject like this, and one of the things I've tried to do in the book, is to give different generations voice of their own perceptions by quoting anecdotes, things told by people at different periods. They tell you intrinsically all sorts of things about what they see in these buildings. And so you know, I hope that, as I say, one of the ways in which I've tried to shift the frame and one of the ways in which I hope this book does things differently is not only in the canvas of time it covers from the distant past to the present day, but also that it allows you to see that there isn't an absolutely coherent vision, that all of us see these things slightly differently, just as we all do today. But that variety is apparent in time as well as in, in breadth of view. So I hope that the book gives voice to those perceptions and sort of illustrates how people live with castles, perceive castles, dealt with castles and engaged with them and saw them as backdrops to their lives or saw them, saw them as impositions uh, on their lives, as uh, monuments or as places where power was played out and where you needed to be and to be involved. So it's a hugely complicated story. It's castle in many ways is a building type which goes from the very centre of political power in the conquest and then gradually moves outwards and today they feel like backdrops rather than centers of political decision making but in many ways that doesn't make them any less interesting it just means they're very slightly different and the book is trying to come to grips with with some of that diversity through different voices i suppose that was john goodall architectural editor at country life John's book, The Castle, A History, is out now, published by Yale University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Listener.